You're listening to a podcast from Turners Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. A little while ago, I was in a Church of England, just visiting, I think, and um, up on the wall, there was a fresco, not one of these Italian, beautiful Italian frescoes, one of these kind of muddy, medieval English frescoes, and it was a picture of the Day of Resurrection, and it was portrayed in, you might have seen something like this, a kind of almost clumsy literalism with kind of emaciated people climbing and clambering out of the graves in a Church of England graveyard, (laughs) helping each other out, and, you know, the lids of those kind of stone sarcophagi that you get, which I don't think actually have people in, but anyway, pushed aside, and people kind of climbing out. Have you seen something like that? Do you know what I'm talking about? There, and there's this kind of... Um, <laughs> sorry if you haven't. I think I painted a good picture for you, though. So. <laughs> there's this uh, clumsy literalism. Of course, it was, you know, for a, a time gone by when perhaps people didn't have their own Bible and pictures maybe helped people to understand stuff. And we can look at that and kind of raise some questions about, is that a really helpful way to imagine the resurrection? You know, Paul kind of warns us in 1 Corinthians 15, if you're wondering how the resurrection works, don't be silly about it. You know, these things are beyond our understanding. So maybe that is a bit over-literal um, to see people clambering out of graves and it sort of raises all sorts of awkward questions about soil and things like that, <laughs> if you really think about it. But there's something about that literalism that is uh, really helpful and also that we find in this passage today, and it's, it's that reality, physicality, normality of the resurrection that Luke is really pushing. Uh, well, God was really pushing in, the, in Christ's encounter with the disciples after his resurrection. And Luke has picked up on that, that the physicality of the resurrection. So, yes, there's something really different about Jesus now after he's raised from the dead he appears in a locked room John tells us the door was locked uh, to so the disciples on the road to Emmaus he wasn't instantly recognizable there, there was something different there's something glorious and changed about him uh, there's something weird they, the disciples were kind of freaked out at first but then normality and the physicality of the resurrection, uh, the resurrection takes over so Jesus says, look at my hands and my feet, and he shows them his hands and feet. A ghost doesn't have these. Um, there's the, um, one of the just lovely, I think just lovely points in this passage is the joy that the disciples have. It says they didn't believe because they were overcome with joy. It doesn't really mean that they didn't believe. It's kind of like, you know, that, that we would say, you know, I, I, don't, I just don't believe it. I, I, you know, like a kind of, overwhelmed with, uh, it, it's actually here, and, and they're at ease in Jesus' presence. It's not so weird that they can't overcome it. There's that moment of kind of like, wow, like they absolutely didn't expect it. And then they're overjoyed. They're seeing their friend, their Lord, their master, their teacher in the flesh. And then he sits down and they have broiled fish together. Good news, Ken. Be fish and fish in the resurrection. Mark, I'm sure you're just as happy. <laughs> but you see, the, the reason it's there is, you know, that we've finished our reading on that verse is God is really just shoving in our faces just the, the physical nature of the resurrection 
the normality of it, the homeliness of it in a way, as well as it being weird and glorious and all those things. And, and, and that's kind of the basis of what I think God wants to say to us this morning. I, I don't really want to depart, in a sense, from that emphasis that Luke's bringing out. And we see it's not just Jesus' resurrection and the, the physical nature of it that's important. It's that we will be raised like him, the Bible says. So that the, we too will have bodies like Jesus when we're raised from the dead, for all who believe in him. That's our, that's our hope. And that's defended, articulated through the Bible. You know, Paul really takes that on, especially in 1 Corinthians 15. He, uh, he, um, he really emphasizes how important it is. If, we, if there's no resurrection, then what, what is our hope? What are we living for? We're to be pitied above all men. He really goes into explaining why this is important against those who sort of say, you know, the resurrection has already happened. You know, they're imagining some kind of spiritual thing or just otherworldly thing that's kind of disembodied. Um, and then, so you get that really clearly in the Bible. And that shows us, of course, that this isn't just some uh, editorial inclusion by Luke who just happened to want to mention what they were eating that day. There's something really theologically for us, faith-wise, something really important for us to, to believe here, something really, really important. So that it's there in Luke, that it's there in uh, Paul's writing, in the early church, we, we get a, a massive emphasis against kind of Greek philosophy that was really emphasized that the spirit was the most important thing and kind of we were souls trapped, you know, that they believe that the souls trapped inside bodies. The early church was really adamant in emphasizing the physicality of Jesus' incarnation and his resurrection and of our resurrection too. It was one of the cornerstones of our faith. And again and again and again, the early church had to, to fight battles with people who called themselves Christians and surrounding kind of pagan society that wanted to say, what is this kind of yucky thing that you believe about, you know, coming back into a body? That's kind of silly and kind of subpar somehow. So you get in the second century, a guy called Irenaeus, he says, if our flesh is not saved, then the Lord has not redeemed us with his blood. There can be no blood without veins, flesh, and the rest of the human substance. You know, he's really pushing home. Jesus had veins, flesh, sinews, you know, and it's because of that he had blood, and it's because of his blood that we're saved. Our flesh is saved. It's really, really important. So we see that through in the Bible, in the early church, and we can see that this is a really important thing as well because it comes under attack again and again by the enemy. The reason why Irenaeus wrote those words is because there were people who, uh, there was a movement trying to say that, you know, this resurrection business, this the importance, the physicality of our salvation is somehow unimportant. And that was rife in the early church. And I believe God would want us to be aware of how prevalent in our culture uh, is this idea that somehow the body is unimportant. And what's really important is this kind of invisible element that's inside you. Our culture probably wouldn't call it the soul or the spirit. Maybe they would. You know, it's kind of mixed up. We call it the soul. They would say the soul is important. That's who you really are. And your body is just kind of, it's an accident. It's kind of, it's, uh, it's not that important. And so we see those things in, uh, kind of confusion around gender and sexuality and all sorts of different things, actually, ethics and, and so on. Um, but the way you live is somehow disconnected from who you really are. So it's under attack in our culture as well. And, but what does that tell us? If the enemy attacks it, we know that it's probably going to be Really, really important. So, what do we do with that? Or what would God have us here 
today when we talk about the physicality of the resurrection, this eating of this broiled fish, this being at ease in the presence of a resurrected man. Well, in one sense, I think, actually, it's on, it, it's on my heart, I believe, from the Lord, just to kind of just hold it out there to you in its weirdness and say, actually, I think God wants us to meditate on it. There are 180 or more sermons we could preach on why is the physical resurrection important. But actually, this is, this is one of those mysteries that we meditate on that bears fruit. And, and in, the first thing is I just want to give you that passage from Luke and in the raw and just say, think about how physical, normal, real that encounter with Jesus was. And think about that that is the hope that you share. You will be resurrected in a physical body. You'll be able to eat fish if you want to. You'll be recognisable to the people. All the, you'll be, the relationships you had in this life will be carry on into the next life. The, the physicality of this life will somehow change, yes, but continue somehow will carry on into the next. And I'm not going to meditate on it for you much today, but I want to I believe that God's word is, it is like a seed. You can plant it and you can water it as you think about it and it will bear fruit in your life. And I think that's the first thing God wants us to, to think about. It's just uh, Paul says in uh, Philippians, is, he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. So, is that okay? Can we just plant that seed? Good. And that's up to the Holy Spirit to bring fruit out of that in the coming weeks, months maybe. I want to, having said that, I do believe there's one kind of strand that I think that God would bring out to us uh, more specifically from this passage. Um, it's, it's kind of foundational for the Christian faith and it's why is it important? For us, even as Christians, there is this weird thing, isn't it? Like we, we know if we die in this life, we'll go to be with the Lord and we'll go and we'll have that perfect encounter with him. We won't, we'll be in this, the intermediate state, as the theologians call it, before the resurrection, we'll be in Jesus' presence and we'll be perfectly we'll be able to see him and encounter him and you know all those things. But a wonderful thing. And then when he returns, there'll be the resurrection. And for many of us, that's like a demotion, isn't it? Like, oh, I was in heaven, enjoying myself in God's presence. And then there's this resurrection. And it's almost like, oh, why are we going back to that? Well, what, what I want to think about today is, why is that not a demotion? <laughs> why is that a good thing? That actually, having been in the presence of Christ, having seen God, having been died and gone to heaven, as it were, God then put, reunites us with our resurrected bodies and then eternal life begins. Why is that a promotion rather than a demotion? I don't know if you've ever thought about that before. Sometimes I, I feel like I'm inflicting my theological agonies on you guys by <laughs> introducing these questions and then you know, answering, answering them in the space of one. So <laughs> you're like, never really thought about that. Never worried about it before. Thanks, Jeff. <laughs> now I've got more questions than answers. <laughs> but actually, it's, it is a really important question. And it's actually, there's quite, a, there's quite a simple but profound answer. A simple but profound answer. Our bodies give us something that 
no other creature has. Not even the angels have. Not even the angels who worship in God's presence, who have to cover their face and say, holy, 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 gaze on him day and night, have. Our physical nature enables us to know God's love fully. I'm going to unpack all the theology for you, but that's it. That's what it, that's what it is. Our physical bodies enable us to know God's love fully. So we're not just recipients of God's blessing. We're not just people who receive goodness from God. We're not just creatures who know that God is good, but we actually enter into fellowship with him. And that is because he has given us our physical bodies and this world that we live in. And that's why the resurrection from the dead is so important. So no other creature is made in his image. That happens after you know, dust is formed from the ground and, you know, made in his image. No other creature is called the bride of the sun. True? No other creature is called adopted as sons. No other creature is called a co-heir with Christ. No other creature has its nature assumed into God. God became Man. God became man for eternity. That is remarkable, isn't it? And all those things, those titles and all those things, what they point us to is that it's our physicality that enables us to know God fully. It enables us to receive his love in a way that other creatures can't. It enables us to return his love in a way that no other creature can. And it enables us to be fruitful with his love in the, in the Holy Spirit in a way that no other creature can for eternity. That is, that is really, really cool. Um, sometimes when I talk about what it means to be son, I feel like it's almost like saying, you know, God hasn't made us billionaires, he's made us trillionaires. And you're kind of like, well, I'd be happy with being a billionaire, to be honest with you. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like... We're so happy with our salvation. We're so happy that God has set his love upon us that actually this is almost superfluous to talk about how we're set apart from the rest of creation. But, you know, there's something qualitatively different about the way God has set his love on humankind. Do you understand that? And it is amazing, isn't it? You know, when John overflows and see in 1 John, see what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God. It's not just our salvation from sin that he is you know, collapsing and overflowing in praise about. It's not just that. It's, it's utter unbelievability, really. God has placed us at the center of his universe somehow. But given us this privilege beyond any other creative thing, it is absolutely mind-boggling. What that leads us to, that's a meditatable mystery in itself, isn't it? We can think about that a lot. And again, I can't draw out every implication for you, but it's, it's worth us knowing. What that leads us to is something that theologians call, and I, you know I love dropping these little phrases in for you guys, but it's because it's memorable, I'm going to say it. What theologians call the immortal vocation of matter. You don't have to say that. You can repeat it back to me if you want. (laughs) The immortal vocation of matter. 
It multivocational matter. If we grasp what that means, it actually changes the way that we see things. It changes the way that uh, we see the world, that we see ourselves, the way we interact with things. The, the, the life we live now is fundamentally shaped by recognizing that it's something about our physical bodies that will carry on into eternity through Christ. It shapes everything. And I, I prayed and asked the Lord, what, if is there any specific thing you want me to mention to this morning? And I feel he put a few things on my heart that just to draw out the implications of, you know, this odd phrase, the immortal vocation of matter, or the physicality of our resurrection, that are good for us right now in, in our context. So this is what I feel Lord put on my heart. Firstly, it's super important for us in terms of preaching the gospel. So important for us in terms of preaching the gospel. You know, our, the good news we've got is not just, is not escape from this world. You know, when, uh, when God saved Israel, the Israelites, out of slavery in Exodus, he did one thing. He? He, slaved, he saved them out of slavery in Exodus. They were crying out. He saw the burden that was on their shoulders, and he wanted to rescue them. But it wasn't just out of slavery that he saved them for. He saved them for a promised land. Their hearts longed not just for freedom, but for inheritance. They had this sense of what was good and what should, what the way life should be. And what, I'm, what I feel God would remind us of this morning is that actually, if you look at the people around you, our message is not some esoteric, really hard to understand, super spiritual thing that only a certain mindset or character can understand. But actually, there is something in everybody, because we share this physical nature, because they experience the goodness of what God has done, doesn't matter what type of personality they are, what mentality they have, what you know, their heart is like, really, there is an instinctive draw towards the salvation that God offers us. You know, make it comical if you like. The man who likes fish and chips on a Friday and doesn't think much else has something in common with Jesus Christ who ate fish on the day of the resurrection. I'm not trying to be flippant, but there is something good in that. Our message is not weird. And it's a little bit weird. (laughs) It's very weird. But... (laughs) But it's not weird in a way that undoes our nature. So we can hold out a message that says, for example, to fathers, I know that you want to be a good father to your children. Jesus is the answer. You know? It's a message that says to workers, I know that you struggle with stress and anxiety or perfectionism or drudgery or whatever it is. Jesus can make that Human, real, physical thing, everyday thing. He can imbue it with goodness and glory. He can fill your life with goodness. And this isn't prosperity gospel. But it is that God makes, fulfills all the hints of goodness that are in us. Paul preaches like this in Acts. He, I can't remember exactly where it is. It's Lister or there, I think. But he, his sermon is something like, he's the God that sends the rains, causes the harvest to grow. He fills our stomachs with good things. That's a gospel message. Isn't it? So God wants us to know that we have this gospel that isn't just for the next life, something otherworldly, something ethereal, it's something that we're fully at home with. You know, that's, there's something in that. The, the disciples are comfortable around Jesus. There was, a, there was another meal at which uh, God appeared that was super weird in the Old Testament. It was the Feast of Belshazzar. You know, you know that one where a hand appears and writes on the wall? 
That would properly freak you out. And that freaked the, the people out at that feast. God was there in this preternatural way. That would have been shivers down your spine and I can't wait to get out of here. Let's never talk about this again. That's ethereal, otherworldly, like, you know, un, unmaking, really. And God did that to put the fear of God into the people there. This is something different. This is the disciples coming home, meeting someone they know. And it's, it's that that I feel God wants to give us in terms of the gospel this morning, that confidence that if you introduce someone to Jesus, you're introducing them to the best friend they will ever have, the person that makes sense of their whole life, the person that gives them everything that their heart secretly longs for, not some weird otherworldly thing. That's good news. And he gives us a life where you know, the promise held out to us is that as sons, we can perceive the Father's love in every moment of our lives. Everything that happens, even the bad stuff, we can understand that the Father loves us. And we can experience the love of God in that moment as we offer it back to him in thanksgiving. It is a wonderful gospel that we have. Salvation, utterly free. Salvation from our sins. Forgiveness. The price is paid and a, a promised land that we get to live in of knowing the Father's love. This is an amazing message. So that's the first thing I just, God wants to give us that confidence in that message. Does that make sense? Can you join the dots? Have I connected them okay? You don't? Yeah, I hope so. I trust the Lord is doing that. The second little thing from this that I think God would just speak about is it shapes the way we understand how we live now. Morality, really. You know, the Gnostics, the people that that guy Irenaeus was writing about that I quoted earlier, the Gnostics, they kind of split into two camps. There were some Gnostics who, like, this world doesn't matter, so we're not going to enjoy anything. Those were the, you know... Really boring Gnostics. And then there were the other Gnostics who were like, this world doesn't matter. I can do whatever I like. And those were like really crazy Gnostics. You read about some of those guys in like two Peter and so on. And they lived these really wild lives. It didn't, because it didn't matter what you do with the body. They could get away with anything. That's what they thought. And Irenaeus is sort of writing to, you know, into that context. And to that idea, and I don't think there's anyone sitting here this morning that says it doesn't really matter what I do with my body. But actually, that idea is quite uh, powerful, and often we find it in unexpected places. What you do with your body actually affects your ability to know God. What you do with your body affects your ability to know God, and thus to live for him, and thus to enjoy the fruit of eternal life. And the Bible is really clear about that. And it's just, it's just a simple... It could be a shot across the bow. It could be a little warning message from God. It could just be a reminder. It could be an inspiration to keep going. But God would just say, what you do with your body affects your ability to know him. So, you know, Paul is very clear about this in terms of sexual ethics. This is especially true. All other sins are outside the body, but the person who sins sexually sins against the body. It's internal. There's something profoundly blinding and numbing about sexual sin that distances us from God. So God, is, God, that's the reason why God tells us to flee away from it, uh, flee from sexual sin. It's the reason why He gives us all, all His law. That we remember, we looked at how it, 
the law enables us to flourish. All the Ten Commandments are about us flourishing. The reason it gives us that guidance is because there is a way to live self-controlled, upright lives, godly, you know, all, all those things uh, that gives most glory to him, but enables us to, to know him because we're living how he intended. And it's just a reminder about these things. It might not be anything as big as sexual immorality. It could just be like having an incredibly cluttered life. Like it's not living, not making space to worship God or not making space to spend time with your family, not having a Sabbath. It could just be like um, uh, the problem of uh, self-discipline, self-control. It could be like uh, we have to be aware of the way technology changes the way that we experience the world around us. You know, just like in parenting, I know the pressure of, you know, kids are noisy and messy and loud and they interrupt you, you and all those things. They're physical, embodied creatures made in the image of God, made to know him. And I have this magical tool that I can put in their hands and instantly disembody them. I might as well beam them up to the Starship Enterprise when I give them this. They're so, suddenly they become unphysical creatures, almost. And I have to be aware that is a very powerful tool. And maybe, actually, I'm robbing myself and them and the people around me of something really, really important, which is their physicality. And that's just one example. You can apply that not just to kids, but the way we interact with one another and all those things. We have to be wise about the fact that we are embodied creatures, wise about the way we use technology in that sense. I know that's a kind of everyday and down-to-earth point, but does that make sense? Okay, thirdly, I feel that the Lord would speak to us about our physical, our physicality and the fact that we have this resurrection body to come shapes the way we worship. This is a super important point, I think, for us as a church. There's a, a guy called James K.A. Smith. He's a theologian. You don't have to remember his name. It's fine. But he wrote a book about something called the liturgy of the shopping mall. The liturgy of the shopping mall. And basically he said, if you think about it really carefully from a certain Christian perspective, when you go to, I know mean, we don't have many malls, but actually in Crawley we do have one, don't we? So when you go into a mall... Doesn't it look a bit like a cathedral, he's basically saying. They, they build it in a certain way to evoke a physical response in you. Space and light and openness and opportunity. It's, and then you go to your shop and you browse. And then you pick out the item, you take it to the checkout, and the person says, uh, how's your day, sir? He's American, so maybe it's a bit in the UK, it's normally like, well, but you know, in America it's like, how's your day going, sir? <laughs> And you say, I'm going, that's very well, thank you. And have you found everything that you were looking for today, sir? And you're, yeah, I did, thanks. And they go, okay then. And then there's a little liturgical exchange. You know, like in the Church of England, where it's like, the Lord be with you and also with you. That's, it's like that, right? It's the same thing every time. And it conditions you. And while you're doing that, you're kind of like, oh, I'm ex- okay, now I know what happens next. They're going to ring it through the till, and I'm going to give them my card, and your heart rate's going to go a bit faster because you're going to get this thing in a minute. And they're going to put it in that nice bag, and then you're going to drive home, and you're going to open it, and then your act of worship is fulfilled. It's all the liturgy of the shopping mall. Now, his point is this, that actually we are, because we're physical creatures, we, you can't escape that the liturgy, basically. You can't escape that there are patterns and habits that form us and shape us. Because we're embodied creatures. And so, all that to say is, we, well, we should be aware of the way the world shapes us, certainly, definitely in these false and idolatrous patterns of worship. But actually, even in our own worship, we have to be aware that we, as embodied creatures, the physical things around us shape us. 
So when it comes to your private devotions, where you are, your attitude, even your body position, and all those things, actually, they're not the most important thing. The Lord is very clear, the most important thing is your heart. But because you are physical, these things shape the way you feel. They habituate you. They have the power to draw you closer to God and enable you to know him more and to enable it to know him less. So very simply, just a challenge is, just in your private devotions, what does your physical space look like? The Lord Jesus went to a lonely place to spend time with the Father. Often. He made space. He found quiet. He went to a place where he wasn't going to be distracted. Because he was a physical, he was a man. And he couldn't just, you know, magic his ears shut. So how's that private devotion? And that shapes the way we worship in public as well, but we'll talk about that another time. In, um, there's a tendency in our churches like ours, we describe ourselves as charismatic because we have freedom in worship and we clap, or sometimes 10% of us clap. <laughs> Maybe a little bit more. We clap, we raise our hands, we feel free, and all those things. There's a temptation to think of that as somehow spiritual in a disembodied sense. You know, but if you look at if you know a bit of church history, you know the Reformation was a kind of reaction against, amongst many other things, a reaction against empty kind of ritual. It seemed to us that the practices, or it seemed to the people at the time, the practices of the church at that time were empty and hypocritical. And therefore they were like the form of religion, but without the substance. And Protestantism was a kind of rejection of those things that says, actually, what we need is to worship in spirit and truth. So what, but that, and that lasted for about 400 years, and long came the Pentecostal movement and the charismatic movement. And God was doing something else. And I think if we look at that, actually what we see is God is not saying that what our Protestant forebears did was wrong or empty or so on, but actually that our physicality is part of how we worship. So as charismatics, we think of ourselves as spiritual, but actually I think a large amount of what God is doing in the way we worship is reminding us that we're physical. Actually, it's important that you sing good music that you like, that you know has a good tune that you sing and you hum when you get home, that you that lifts your spirits. It's important that it, that it engages your heart, not just your mind. It's important that you feel free to raise your hands, and it's important that you know that it's an overflow, like Matt was saying. It's an overflow out of the whole of your life that you're not constrained, and that is a really helpful perspective for us on worship. I think. There's a funny um, uh, idea. I think it's I think it's right. I think it's good from uh, theologian Thomas Aquinas, and he says that our resurrection bodies will perfectly reflect our souls. So for the damned, there'll be a kind of perfect corruption visible, which I think you see that in the Bible, especially in prophecies of Daniel. And for those who are saved by Christ, our souls will shine out through our bodies so that we'll perfectly be able to see each other. And I think that's a lovely description of what worship should be like. It shouldn't be hypocritical, empty, kind of like, you know, I've got my hands in the air, but I'm thinking about Pokemon Go or something. (laughs) Neither should it be disembodied, spiritual, just feelings inside. But actually, it's 
those two things come together. It's the, the heart shining out through the soul. That's really the heart of what you know, I think our theology of worship should be here, for those of you who are into that sort of thing. But our, our worship should allow us to express what's in our hearts most, most clearly and guide, guide us into that. So, I think God will speak to us about that. Lastly, there's a kind of, I want to say it's the big thing. This is the heart thing. We've done some teaching. I hope that's okay. I think that this, the resurrection of Christ and that physicality challenges us with a simple question. Are you giving yourself completely to God? Are you giving yourself completely to God? Our bodies afford us a freedom that even the angels don't have. There's this lovely encounter, which I think is like a, a clash of cultures, when Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, meets the angel Gabriel. And the angel Gabriel gives him a message from heaven, and Zechariah says, well, how do I know these things will come to pass? And the angel Gabriel is like, um, he just doesn't understand, it's almost like he doesn't understand where he's coming from. I stand in the presence of God. Where's the grey area in this? <laughs> But you see, there's a, in that contrast is something quite interesting. God has given us that ability to say, really? <laughs> or yes? Or no? God enables us to give ourselves absolutely to God in freedom. You think in... Uh, He enables us to love. Love is that absolute gift of ourselves that we make. So you think of a, a wedding, and you think of the vows you make with my body in the church ring. With my body, I do worship. You know, it's it's a, it's an absolute self gift. All that I am, I give to you. All that I have, I share with you. Love is this absolute self gift. And what God has given us in our bodies is the ability to give ourselves freely to Him. Or not. Or not. God has granted us this incredible freedom. He's granted you this incredible freedom. That you can make a gift of your life to him. All the good things he's given you, you can offer back to him. Or you can withhold from him. You can give him your heart your mind, your soul, your strength. You can give them all of those things, or some of those things, or none of those things. And his word to us this morning is, are you, are you in the place where you're giving your all? Where you're saying to him, all that I have, I give to you. All that I am, I give to you. All that I have, I share with you. Are you in that place where, like a, someone at a wedding, you're saying, with my body, God, I thee worship. Is there any part of your life that you're withholding from him? Now, again, there's a danger of being too specific about this. You could, I could extract for you all the different ways where we may withhold something from God. You know, fear or you know, mental assent to the faith or just the faithfulness with our time or our money or you know, extravagance in worship, or all those things. But actually, it, the sense is we know when we're withholding something. You know, For you guys who are married, you know when you're holding back, don't you? When you're, you know when... 
uh, you're not sharing yourself completely when that trust is missing. And God will challenge us with the same thing. Is there something that you're holding back from him? Coldness in a relationship, especially in a marriage, ruins it. Coldness in our relationship with God ruins it. And his word to us, is there that coldness that robs you of intimacy with him? Is there a coldness that robs you of fruitfulness with him? What are you withholding? The resurrection in the flesh of Christ speaks to you how much he gave for you, which is everything. God, who needed nothing, took on flesh. He took on our sin. He suffered. He died our death in the flesh. He gave himself completely. He gave himself completely so that you could give yourself completely to him. Do you understand that? So that you could share in his divine life. What would you withhold from him? who has already given you everything and will give you more and more into eternity. Let's pray.